0: And I want to add my welcome to Terry's and to Sean's. I also want to tell you, we've got another pastor in the house this morning. Pastor Londia, where where have you gone? There we go. For those of you who don't know her, this is Pastor Londia Granger-Wright. She is our district superintendent, which means that she's in charge of keeping all us pastors in line and nurturing us and taking care of us. She was instrumental in helping me get my appointment back here at Salem, so I'm especially happy to have her here worshiping with us this morning. You know, I have been welcomed back so warmly since I took on this role. I've had cards and calls and visitors to my office. Nick was in my office this morning and gave me a big hug to welcome me back here. This is the first time I've been in this specific pulpit since I changed roles into my role as executive pastor. But one thing has become clear to me. If the conversations go on very long with any of you, nobody really understands what it is that I do all day. (laughs) People seem to know that it involves a lot of keys and colored pens and a law degree, but the details are incredibly hazy. And I must admit that they were hazy to me even when I started in this new position just a few months ago. Christianity Today tells us that executive pastors are a hot trend in large growing churches. They operate as a sort of COO, that the the senior pastor, Terry, can focus on more traditional roles, preaching and teaching and visiting with people when they're in need in the hospital. For instance, today, she's over at our South City site preaching, and I am here, so as the church gets bigger, it just takes more of us, and I am thrilled to be on the team. Having spent so many years in municipal and faith-based nonprofit work, I tend to think of my job sort of like the city manager for a city or the executive director of a faith-based nonprofit. But I will tell you that churches are not cities. And while we may be one of the original faith based nonprofits, our mission is so much larger. Our mission is to connect all people with God's extravagant love. And my job really is just to help make that happen. But what does that mean day to day? Our board was curious as well, so they asked our very talented Hazel Oliver, our videographer, to tail me around for a few days last week and to make a video. So it's, I think, gonna land in your inboxes this week, but you guys are gonna get the preview version. I'm actually gonna get the preview version on a big screen. This is what Deb Lemoyne does during the week. I go to prepare a place for you. That's what I think of when I think of my job as an executive pastor. I think about preparing places for people. Places to worship, places to study, places to serve. My job description says that I'm responsible for overseeing the day-to-day operations of one church operating in two locations. I make sure that all of our resources, buildings, money, and most important of all, people, are working together to connect everyone, including people we don't even know yet, to God's extravagant love. So much of what gets done here seems almost invisible because it happens outside of Sunday morning worship. But there's this great team of staff and volunteers working the other six days of the week, all 52 weeks of the year, to make sure that the money that goes into the offering plate on Sunday morning makes a difference in our community and around the world. We run a dozen or more finance reports every month. Our payroll typically exceeds 50 people. We maintain and continue to improve two huge sites Working with a team of contractors and consultants, not just to get those sites ready for Sunday morning, but to get them ready for the next generation. We partner with agencies like Kingdom House and Epworth so that our resources extend far beyond these walls, feeding people and changing lives throughout our community. Like those that went before us, we are preparing a place. These walls are full of activity all week long. Musicians are practicing. Ministry leaders are creating programs that transform lives. Staff are brainstorming about next steps. People are being fed. And yes, we do deal with a lot of plumbing and recycling and room painting and figuring out which walls are load-bearing and whether or not we still have the tile that matches the entryway floor. Some of the most important moments of my life have happened here. But in my office, I keep a photo of another church. It was my uncle's church when he was a young chaplain in Vietnam and he's leading worship in a church without a roof. When you look at it, you assume some terrible event has happened here, but it was really monkeys. The monkeys were tearing the roof off, and every time these young soldiers put the roof back on, the monkeys just tore it right back down again. Eventually, they just worshiped without a roof. It sits there, and it reminds me that even though I spend most of my day working on buildings, at the end of the day, it's not about buildings at all. The church is not a building. It never has been, and it never will be. The church is a community. A community of hope and faith and love and joy where lives are transformed. I get to oversee the day-to-day operations of a community in the business of bringing good news to reality. And that is the best job of all. Who would have thought back in my old speech and debate days I'd make it to the big screen? (laughs) You know, it is busy, as you can tell, and it is a lot of fun. And it is different every single day, especially as we get ready for Christmas. There is a lot of prioritizing involved. There are a lot of balls in the air and we've got to decide which balls to put in the air and which ones need to wait. We try to decide what needs to get done now. And we try to decide what we can get done before the end of the fiscal year. Everything is always in motion. We are always making decisions and moving forward and trying to decide what to do next to prepare, not just for the next Sunday or the next Christmas, but for the next generation. And I think that's an important thing to think about, that window that I pointed out to Hazel. I go to prepare a place for you. That's really what we're doing in the season of Advent. We're waiting for Jesus' arrival and preparing a place for him. The Gospel of Luke tells us a lot about how people got ready for Jesus that first Christmas long ago. Now you have to remember, they didn't know exactly when he would come or exactly where he would come or exactly what he would look like. They had just been waiting. And as Tim told us last week, they had been waiting a very long time. Listen to the way the prophet Isaiah talked about the coming of the future Messiah 500 years before Jesus was born. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. All people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary. Even young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and they will not faint. This is what the people of God were waiting for. And they waited a long, long time. But then, then in the New Testament, we see Matthew and Luke both record for us in the birth narratives what happens when the people's time of waiting is over. Read together, those two gospel accounts give us the most complete story of Jesus' birth. Luke's is longer, with a lot more detail, and it's my favorite of the two. Without Luke's attention to detail, the Christmas pageant that Patty puts on each year would be short and dull, and to be honest, it would be a little bit scary. It's Luke that gives us the angels and the shepherds and the baby wrapped in bands of cloth and laid in a manger because there was no room for him at the inn. But before all that glorious detail that our children celebrate every year, Luke gives us a guy named Zachariah. Now in all the years that I've been around the church, I have never seen poor Zachariah get even a cameo appearance in the children's Christmas pageant. But Luke, Luke spends 43 verses of the Christmas story not on Jesus, but on old Zechariah, the first 20 of those verses read like this. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they both were very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of lords and burn incense. And when the time of the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah answered the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. That's how you politely say that about your wife. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent, and you will not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zachariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but he remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Zachariah was a priest in the temple. And the way I see it, he was an executive pastor of sorts long before the term was trendy. Zachariah was a behind-the-scenes, back-of-the-house, detail-oriented sort of guy. Luke tells us that Zechariah's job was to keep the incense burning even when no one saw him do it. His job was critical because Jewish tradition held that the part of the worship service most beloved by God was when the smoke rose up from the altar of incense because it represented the prayers of the people rising up to God, and that God so loves our prayers. Zechariah maintained that altar of incense all week long, morning and evening, even when no one was around. The incense had a very specific formula. It had to be made a certain way, burned a certain way, at certain times, in certain places, by certain people. It had to be done just right. The right supplies had to be in place, the right rules had to be followed, the right maintenance schedule had to be maintained. When Luke tells us that Zachariah was blameless before God, he doesn't so much mean that he was without failing or without sin, that he never made a mistake. He means that he followed the laws and ordinances of God. He kept things ready. He, too, prepared a place. And in the midst of that, an angel appears to him with amazing good news. Zechariah, working behind the scenes, is the first person in the New Testament to have a conversation with an angel. And the angel promises him a much hoped-for child of his own, despite the age of he and his wife Elizabeth. And how does he respond? Like many of us probably would, with shock and a lot of questions. If you ever come in here some Sunday morning and find that all of your clergy have been rendered mute, you will know that we have been visited by an angel and that we responded with shock and a lot of questions. But the story notes that even though he was speechless, he continued his time of service because his service to the Lord did not really require him to have words. This is not the end of Zechariah's story. It's just the first half. Zechariah gets another 23 whole verses, but I want to pause here and ask a question. Why is Luke telling us all this? Paper was expensive in Luke's day. He would not have written it down if he didn't think it mattered. All of this detail that doesn't make for a very good Christmas pageant at all. Why do we have it? I think it's because Luke is telling us how important it is to be prepared. He's asking us to think about what we do while we wait. Let me ask you this. How many of us have children coming home for Christmas soon? Anybody besides me? My youngest comes home for Christmas this Friday, and I am so excited I could almost explode. There is cookie dough and grocery lists and wrapping paper all over my house right now. I can't wait. When we are excited about somebody coming, we prepare. And the key to doing it well is to know what the person who is coming cares about. I know that my daughter Elizabeth cares more about clean sheets than homemade gingerbread, and that my son Jack couldn't care less if his sheets are clean, but we better make sure the Wi-Fi connection is strong, and he wants to know what Brian is putting on the big green egg for Christmas dinner. We know what they care about, and so we get it ready. And while nobody may see us getting ready, it's those preparations that make all the difference in the world when that precious child walks through the door. And so I wonder, what is it that Jesus cares about? What do we know about Jesus that tells us how to prepare for him? I think that Advent wreath that Sean lit gives us a beautiful clue this season. Hope, peace, love, joy. These are the things that Jesus cares about. These are the things we are called to prepare to make space for him in our lives at Christmas. Scholars tell us, that the birth ma- narratives in Matthew and Luke are something called literary overtures, that they tell the whole story of the gospel in miniature, their summaries, and in this overture, Luke is reminding us how important it is to prepare, to wait with excitement. He's inviting us not just to think about Zachariah's service to God, but our service to God. How do we get our buildings ready, whether they're churches or homes or schools, but not just our buildings, How do we get our hearts ready? How do we make space? You know, Zachariah's service in the temple was critical to get ready for God and to get ready for the people to worship God. But it was also critical for the transformation of his own heart. Scripture tells us that Zachariah's wife did become pregnant. She spends three months of her pregnancy with her cousin Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus at the time. And the story tells us that when she first heard Mary's voice, that baby leapt in her womb at the sound of her voice. John knew already. It's Elizabeth who so famously tells Mary, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and blessed is she who believed and did not question that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. You see, Elizabeth and Mary were preparing too And after Mary went back home, Elizabeth did bear a son, who did bring joy and gladness to them, and they did name him John, just like the angel Gabriel instructed to them. I love this story so much, my children are named from it, Elizabeth and John. I took pity on Jack and named him John instead of Zachariah so he wouldn't be that kid in kindergarten who could never spell his own name. (laughs) And it's only after that naming, when the baby is named John, that Zachariah finally speaks again. But this time, he speaks differently because his heart has been changed. Gone are the questions, gone is the doubt, gone is the shock. And in its place is this beautiful song of thanksgiving. It's called Zachariah's Prophecy. And we find it as we carry on in the story in Luke's Gospel at verse 67. John's father, Zachariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, because the Lord God of Israel, bless him because he has come to help and has delivered his people. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in his servant David's house. Just as he said through the mouths of his holy prophets long ago, he has brought salvation from our enemies and from the power of all those who hate us. He has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the solemn pledge he made to our ancestor Abraham. He has granted that we would be rescued from the power of our enemies so that Those of you who remember David Kerr will remember he always said to pay attention when the scripture says, so that. So that we could serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness in God's eyes for as long as we live. And you, you child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. You will tell his people how to be saved through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's deep compassion, the dawn from heaven will break upon us to give light to those who are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide us on the path of peace. That song that Zachariah sings is one of the earliest recorded hymns of praise that we have in the New Testament. People still sing it the world over, often in morning prayers. It's called the Benedictus. Some of you may have heard it. But when people first heard Zechariah sing that song that first time all those years ago, the scripture tells us that they were amazed. I think this is one of those places where the old King James translates it the most beautifully. It says, when the people heard his words, they laid them up in their hearts. That's an important phrase. They laid them up in their hearts. In the Old Testament, that was a very specific idiom. It meant to take something into your heart, to perceive it as important, and to be prepared to act upon it. Not just to hear it, but to perceive it as being important and to be prepared to act upon it, to take it into your heart. To place something in your heart was to get ready. Once again, we're reminded that in our amazement, we are called to take action, we're called to prepare. To get ready is to repent as that baby John would grow up and tell us in his role as John the Baptist. And to repent is simply to turn toward God. I love the way the Greek translates it. In Greek, it means to go beyond the mind you have. To go beyond the mind you have. To see things differently, to think bigger, to see possibilities for the future that no one else is yet seeing. To take it into your heart, to perceive it as important, and to be prepared to act on it. I want you to ask yourself this. What are you waiting for this Advent season? What are you hoping for? And what are you doing to actually prepare for it? We must prepare for the things we hope for, like Mary and Elizabeth getting ready for those babies long ago, like Zachariah keeping the incense lit at the temple, like you and I preparing to break down walls literally and figuratively to make spaces for new people. I take seriously the business of the church. I don't mean the church staff. I mean all of us who have heard the story and try to follow Jesus working together. I take seriously that business because our job is to bring hope and joy and light and peace into the world to make good news a reality for people who haven't yet heard that message. Not just to wait for God to do it, but to work with God to get it done. St. Augustus once famously said that God without us will not do it, and we without God cannot do it. The transformation of the world is a partnership between God and God's people, and that partnership did not end with Zechariah. His words cry out to us through history, reminding us to serve God without fear, in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live, giving light to those who are sitting in darkness and guiding us on the path of peace, not just waiting for peace, not just lighting candles and talking about peace, working for peace, here and now, in the midst of the broken world we've been given, working for peace on earth, goodwill towards all. Each Christmas, as the season rolls around, we are different people. We've grown and changed, maybe taken new jobs in the year since Christmas, on our world, no doubt, is different too. There are new opportunities and new challenges, new things to be excited about and probably some new things to worry about too. And that is why we are called to prepare again each year, taking the words of the Christmas story to heart, perceiving them as important and preparing to act upon them, using all our resources, our talent, our time, our passions, our gifts to get ready for the coming of Christ once again. We're called not just to wait for it, we are called to work for it. Making places for the least, the last, the lost, the hungry, the generations not yet born. We who have heard the story, who've heard the angel singing and heard the cries of that baby coming up out of the manger, we who have heard the story over and over again are called not just to celebrate it, but to live into it. I think the words of the hymn we sang before the sermon said it so well. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Not just has come, not just will come someday, is come. Right here, right now, to you and to me in the midst of our everyday lives. The Lord is come again. And each Advent we're called to get excited. We are called to prepare to make spaces for him. Joy to the world. The Lord is come, and let every heart prepare him room. Amen.
1: And as we continue service, we'd like you to stand and sing our closing song with us. Let <laughs> Strength and consolation, hope of all the earth, Thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every lonely heart. Amen. As we go out into the mission field this week, whatever season of waiting that you're in, whatever you're waiting for, maybe instead of looking at looking at it as a weight, look at it as a prompting, as a prompting from God, because where God prompts, God prepares, and let God prepare you this week, knowing that when God prompts, we don't just wait for it, but we work for it, let's work for it together as a church this week, amen, be blessed, we'll see you guys next week.